This is the Enthusiasts Guild, a place for conversations about wonderful and interesting things with the people who enjoy them. I'm Fletcher C. Finch. I'm Adam Zaremski. And our topic today is The Mandalorian. Specifically, we want to be speaking about the child, parenting, and the music of The Mandalorian. And we are putting it out right away. Spoiler warning. We're going to talk about the show. We're going to delve into it. We're not really going to hold back. We're just going to chat. So you're going to find out and good or bad, come back and listen after you watch The Mandalorian or just listen if you want to learn more about Star Wars and like our voices. If you haven't seen The Mandalorian, stop the podcast right now. Go and watch it. If you're into Star Wars at all, if you're into Westerns, it's so much fun. It's very compelling throughout Yeah, you were the reason I felt more compelled. Like, I knew I wanted to watch it, Mm -hmm. but you had talked about it, and I think I was a little done with Star Wars for a moment with the movies. Okay. Um, And I'm someone who's read some of the, a bunch of the comics, I shouldn't say some, a bunch of the comics that have come out. I've read some of the books, and I've seen all the movies, but like the last couple movies, I'm just kind of like, all right, Star Wars is a thing. But you kept talking about The Mandalorian, and finally had a chance and loved it so i'm happy we get to talk about that and specifically about like music Mm -hmm. and the other parts i think the music shares a lot of qualities with the show itself it's evocative it's fascinating it sets a, a specific tone it fits within the Star Wars universe, but it is definitely its own property. It has its own identity. Those are all things I love about the show and things that I really appreciate about the music. I think you nailed that because it does feel like Star Wars. I've gone back to re-listen to the music alone and it does have somehow the the composer who's Ludwig Göransson. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe he's a Swedish composer who's worked on the Marvel movie Black Panther. He managed to capture the Star Wars feel but he also, if you're a fan of the old spaghetti western, Sergio Leone with Clint Eastwood, he captured something there too because the show is about a bounty hunter who's like a gunslinger kind of off in the distant worlds of off the Star in the wilds. Wars. Off in the wilds. Yeah, so he did a very good job just capturing the feel of it, the characters, and, and not going overboard. I think that yeah. was a huge thing. I think The Mandalorian has more of a Star Wars feel for me than anything since the original trilogy. Really? It does take things off in a different direction, but it has that same kind of grimy, lived-in feel that I love about the original trilogy. No, this is the first time in a while you felt like the music really embodied Star Wars? I think it's such a challenging thing. Star Wars has probably one of the most identifiable scores and some of the most identifiable themes in all of pop culture. Star Wars and Indiana Jones, you know that music. Those John Williams scores are very identifiable and they're very evocative as the Mandalorian music is. But I I think Gorenson did a really good job of putting together something that doesn't clash with that existing property. Like there are some marches, you've got some horns and strings and, and all of that in there. So he incorporates some of those elements, but he takes things in a very different direction. So you feel like, all right, this is the central Star Wars universe that we've seen in the original trilogy. 
and what's happening in the Mandalorian is kind of out there on the periphery of this. This is something where there are hints of what you heard in the original and there are elements there, but it has its own identity. And it does have more in common, like you were saying, with those spaghetti Western, uh, the the music that you'd hear there. I think something with the whistling almost, or I I keep thinking of like the good, the bad, the ugly. Mm -hmm. Every so often the music would kick in and you'd hear a... I I just butchered that, but it would kick in and you knew something was kind of happening or it was leading you into something. And it felt that way too with the Mandalorian where he captured that. And as soon as I heard that, I'm a big fan of those Clint Eastwood movies, um, the man with the no name trilogy. And so just kind of hearing the, it's more than hints even, it's part of it. Mm -hmm. And it, it does stand out in a great way where you, you know, like, oh, it's out in the wild. Kind of this one guy, a bounty hunter, going off and doing his thing and through the story, but it creates a good sense of place. There's a program called Disney Gallery. They have a lot of behind-the-scenes interviews and features about The Mandalorian. And in their interviews with the composer, he talks about how he wanted to create a dystopian feel for the music and that the show was described to him as a samurai gunslinger western show and that he saw it as a one-man journey. And I really think that he does a fantastic job of incorporating all of those elements. As soon as I heard Samurai Western Gunslinger Show, I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what I want to watch, too. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know I needed a Samurai Gunslinger Western show in space until I saw it. It was so good. I think there's a sparseness to it as well. I've been paying attention more to music over the years and (laughs) movie scores or TV scores. And when it works well, it's amazing. And when it's terrible, it really is bad. And I feel like The Mandalorian, they found a good way to not overburden you with something. Like, I've enjoyed the first set of The Lord of the Rings, but Peter Jackson, the director of those, enjoys hammering home every point with a musical score. And I think I really noticed that watching The Hobbit ones, the trilogy, which I hated, and the music is just like, every second it feels like something horrible is going to happen and you're, this is a life and death, death moment. And I'm just like, chill out. But with The Mandalorian, when it cuts in, you're like, oh, wow, it means something here. Because The Mandalorian takes place out on the periphery, out in the wilds, sometimes it's hard to even notice when the music does start to come in. Sometimes it's very subtle and you don't know, is that some of the sound of the soundtrack or the sound effects? Are are these spaceships flying by? Are these birds or the wind whipping through? And then it builds into this very noticeable, very evocative music. And you had mentioned the sparseness of The Mandalorian, and I think that has a lot to do with why the music is so important to The Mandalorian, because this is a series with very sparse dialogue. And for reasons having to do with the plot and that work in really well, your protagonist is wearing a mask. He's not emoting. And so the music is in many ways taking the place of what would otherwise be covered by dialogue or would otherwise be covered by facial expressions or vocal inflection. I think it just does such a good job of communicating to you the internal state of an actor who you can't see much of his performance besides the body language and the the main actor and the body doubles do a fantastic job communicating his thoughts through body language and pauses and editing. It's it's a superbly constructed series. 
but the music is such an integral part of that. Like I said, I've it's been the last few years where I've really started to notice, and I think it it kind of became with The Hobbit. Like you'd notice some of the scores in some movies or something, but watching those ones, I got so angry. <laughs> and it's stupid because it's a movie. <laughs> Who cares? But it would just annoy me. Like the music, it was like it had because the music should tell you kind of what's happening. You mean the score, not the dwarf songs. Correct. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. The score. <laughs> the dwarf songs were bad, but I, I applaud them for trying. <laughs> but it, it just it went overboard. Like the music should be there to, you know, it's part of this. That's what's so cool about movies and television. The visual element when you can add these things, and it creates something else beyond just reading a book or just listening to radio. You get all this mixed in. And you need to balance it out somehow. And finding those programs, those shows that can balance it so it carries you through, it tells you what's happening, but doesn't hit you over the head with a hammer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, The Mandalorian, his main intro song for it that they created for him with like the recorder, the whistle kind of thing, mm-hmm. it's perfect for him. I read something where the composer, you know, he did a lot of the music itself, like just played the instruments, recorded it early on, mm-hmm. started seeing the filming and everything, adjusted it as needed, then started adding some more modern things, uh, synthesizers, and then even added full orchestras when he, it was, seemed like it was needed. And they used, when the last Star Wars movie, um, episode nine was being filmed, mm-hmm. they actually were, that orchestra that was being used for the music and that was also helping out in the Mandalorian series too, which is kind of cool. So that's where you do get a nice Star Wars feel, but something different. I think there's something about both these retro synthesizers that he's using and these lone whistling instruments and, and some of this harsher percussion that all fits in with that universe and its rough lived in feel. Yeah, and that's another thing that was awesome about the show where it did feel it wasn't super glitzy. And they had the money. It's a Disney production, so they had the money to make it whatever they wanted, but they went grittier, and the music really went along with that too. The Baby Yoda character, for people who don't know, he is what the main character, the Mandalorian, goes off to search for and uncovers in the very first episode. And for people watching at the show, it was a big deal because they had no clue. It wasn't in any of the trailers, this character that would be like a baby Yoda. And it's fascinating that Werner Herzog said that about the puppet, like that they should keep it versus the digital because I know when we were watching it, I was watching with my wife and she would always, every time the character would come on, he's so cute. He's just so adorable. I love him. And And that's, been out there on the internet everywhere since mm-hmm. the show came out, which I think is a nice way to kind of, you know, another point when we, we talked about music, it was a big part. I think the parenting, and it's so weird that I'm at this point, Fletcher, it's so weird that when I watch certain things, when there's like a parenting emotion or segment or whatever, whether it hits like, oh, I recognize that now. Mm-hmm. It's just so weird that that's part of my life and part of when I watch media or consume something, it's like another layer, which is cool, but it's still weird to me. As a non-parent, I'm curious about this. What was it about 
the Mandalorian's relationship with the child that that struck you this way? There's a scene where the baby Yoda slash the child mm-hmm. is on the ship with the Mandalorian. Like through up uh, up until that point, he's um you know protecting it because he has to bring it back. It's what he was sent out for as a bounty. Finds it. And there's clearly a connection going on. There's something between the two. Here's the protector. Here's protectee or whatever. But it, the parental thing came to my mind watching it when the baby Yoda's in the spaceship and they're flying back and he's going to turn the child in because that's what he had to do. And there's a point where the little baby Yoda unscrews like something off the top of a, a stick in the spaceship. Yeah, it's like the knob of a gear shift. Yeah. So he unscrews it and is playing with it. And the Mandalorian puts it back. But then at some point, I think he gives it back to him. Hmm. Like he, the, the Yoda character kind of then grabbed it again. And the Mandalorian was just like, just take it. Like it really wasn't a big deal. Like it wasn't going to blow the ship up that he took this little knob off. It's more just for the hand to go on and if you knew it was gone it was fine the way the mandalorian just handed it back to him it was so much about i just saw how i've dealt with my kids in similar ways where they're doing something and you're like stop that and they do it again and if you're logical about it sometimes and it doesn't always happen that you're logical but if you kind of pause for a moment you go it's really not a big deal that the kid is doing this Mm-hmm. And it'll probably make them kind of happy. And maybe it's good in a way. You just kind of relent. And I just saw this relent moment for the Mandalorian. But it was like, uh, fine, just play with it and kind of leave me be. But it was, it was, I think it was another point of the show where it was a touching moment. Because then later on, he goes after he delivered the child to Werner Hudzog and um, comes back to his ship and he looks at it at that same gear shift or whatever you want to call it in the spaceship. Mm. And it makes him think of the character and he clearly created a bond between the time he found him and brought him back that he then decided to go rescue him. This is going to be a huge problem when he goes and does this. He's taken out a lot of guys. It causes a whole leads into the next, the rest of the season. Like he's on the run with this baby Yoda, but they did a great job of setting it up earlier on where he just hands it to him. And then when he goes back in the ship and he looks at the little gear shift and just thinks of the character taking it. And it's like, that's what set him set the Mandalorian to say, okay, I got to go get him, rescue him. And it was, I told my wife, I'm like, that was, this is so written by someone with kids. As a non-parent, that's very interesting to me because the way I, I experienced that was a bit different throughout the series. The Mandalorian undergoes a journey in his relationship with the child. He goes from the the child is his target as a bounty hunter. So first he's the target. Then the Mandalorian is kind of a reluctant caregiver for him. And then he becomes his protector. And that's an important journey. But as a, as a non-parent, I saw that as evidence of the Mandalorian's inherent goodness that he did have an emotional attachment and that he had a code that was deeper than his code as a a bounty hunter. It was more important to him that he had a a more deeply felt morality and that he had to protect someone. But I, I think your experience of this was more 
about the Mandalorian as a surrogate parent figure. I think we're on the same path, though, Mm -hmm. because it is. And I'm not trying to pretend I know everything about kids or and all that. No, no, I, no, I, I yeah. I I just mean it sounds like from the and and it's interesting because since the Mandalorian is this this masked, not especially verbal character, so many of his actions, the way that you see them depends on the interpretation of the viewer, and so I interpreted that as more of a moral response and i think you interpreted it as more of an emotional response but i do think they're i think we're right on the same path yeah Yeah. that's i i think both of those are valid views and and there's overlap it's just interesting to to hear what your experience of it was because what you're saying is exactly similar thoughts i had Mm -hmm. it just went that extra step where i could see how the connection is because if you're fortunate, we'll say, to have a child, <laughs> um, you are a reluctant caregiver at times <laughs> where you're like, oh, I need a break, but I can't have a break. I need to deal with this. And so you put up with it. We even paused this episode for a few minutes so I could go handle p- parental duties um, with a stubborn child who didn't want to sleep. But so you get this reluctant aspect but then it does turn into uh, a caring protector and changing who you are, maybe morally. You know, you sh- if you're a good person, you're a good whatever. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is adjusting how you view certain things. Yeah, at one point it's just like, oh, I have to do this. But then that's where some of the bonding is created because you just go, okay, it's not a big deal. And mm-hmm. because you are kind of a reluctant protector caregiver for a bit if you do create the bond um which you know in the mandalorian you see that several times where as it goes along i think when when he lands back on tatooine amy sedaris is a character in the Mm -hmm. um and she kind of took the baby yoda found it in the ship and took it and the mandalorian did not know this until he came back and he is you you sense like as a, a parent like what this happened how dare you like, you can't just take my kid. I've had him protected. And she was taking care of it. But it was another moment where the bond grew, but in similar way to what you're saying, too. He's not just a, a bounty hunter who's going to go hunt and kill everything in his way, which I think they do kind of look at in one of the episodes as they hint at what he was like in the past where he was kind of fierce. Mm-hmm. But they also do a great job of they have all these flashbacks to his youth and you see him as a a vulnerable child as well right and so he's willing to first he looks at it as that reluctant protector Mm -hmm. and it builds from there and i thought that was so that really struck me like the moment he handed it back to him it was just like fine just take it but then later on there's a moment where he brought the the baby yoda back on the ship and without even without the the yoda character going to take it the Mandalorian reaches over, unscrews it, and hands it to him. Oh, he's anticipating his, yes. his desire. So he knows, yeah. like, and it's almost uh, more of a, I want to keep you happy. Like, it can be seen as one sense, like, okay, this will shut you up and leave you alone. But there's a caring aspect. Like, you clearly, mm-hmm. he recognized that, and it's a way of showing, too, for the viewers that, you know, even if you're not a parent, you can see this as, like, he cares enough. 
And I, I think the construction of that puppet does a lot of work towards that too, is that that puppet is so adorable and it, it does kind of uh, tug at those those instinctive protective vibes in the viewer as as well as in the character. Oh, for sure. When he's sitting in a little pod floating around and his ears are twitching and he smiles or um, walking around slowly following or trying to swallow a frog even. <laughs> as a parent, how much do you wish you had a floating stroller? Oh, man. That would be awesome. <laughs> for listeners out there, I have a one who's going on two in a little bit, but he's a bigger one and he always wants to be held still. <laughs> hold me, hold me. And, and it'd just be great to put him in something he could float around <laughs> near me. Just a, a nice little anti-grav uh, cradle perfect. there. Yeah. Yeah. And then on my wrist, I'd have the directional so he can follow along or move him. And another moment I did find in a similar like relenting slash the bond being created was he told the character to stay here on the ship. He's like, you stay here. And then you see the Mandalorian go down. The gate to his ship opens up on the world. And the camera is sitting there. And as the gate goes down, you see the Mandalorian. Then as it fully comes down to the ground, you see the little baby Yoda standing at him. And the Mandalorian looks down at him. And it was another moment of just like, fine, come along. <laughs> and and that's what he's like, okay, come on. Sure, it's probably better that you come with me. It's not going to be much of a harm, and it creates more of the bond for the two characters and shows it off for the viewers out there. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other high points that you want to mention with the Mandalorian and, and the relationship with the child and that parenting aspect? Yeah, I think throughout the series, you do get a sense that he does care, and it grows even more. So there's the one episode where he meets up with some former people he knew in the past, and they have to go do a a jailbreak and he doesn't really care for any of these people. And then they discover the baby Yoda and he's super protective and taking care of him. And it's, you get a sense that everything he's doing is for this little, this little puppet character. Well, and, and that's a, a fascinating contrast in that episode too, because in many ways that episode, although it starts out like a heist movie, there are elements of almost like a horror movie where the Mandalorian kind of is is cast in that villain role where he's the one who shows up in the flickering light or like suddenly appears behind somebody and, and takes them out. And it's really interesting to contrast that with that caregiver role that he's put himself in with the child. But I did think, too, it's another moment of just doing whatever you can because he's he gets locked up by these people and they're all heading back to the ship where he knows this baby is. And if he can't get there before them, he doesn't know what's going to happen. And he doesn't really have to worry or care, but they've created the bond already. You know, the viewer, you're invested. And so all of his actions are now based on getting back to the ship and it's doing whatever he can mm -hmm. in the end. And I, I was a little surprised at the end of this episode where it seemed as though he killed everyone basically he was doing and said he was just pretty much knocking them out to put him in a, a jail cell which was kind of a nice touch because oh, yeah. it, it showed us humanity but I did before that I did get a similar vibe too of just like whatever he had to do to get back he was going to do it and so I did see the horror aspect because like they had the lighting where it's like it's flickering oh and yeah he's slowly appearing or 
because he hates droids so much. And there's the part where he just all of a sudden appears and wipes them out. He feels like a force of nature in that episode. Much more than he did in the other ones, mm-hmm. which was, I, I, I liked it. But the other ones, they did a great job of kind of humanizing him almost like he gets beat up. He gets thrown around and sometimes almost doesn't seem like he's going to make it. He's just like keeps going. But in this one, yeah, he is just, you get a sense like, oh, wow, he's almost like Batman. (laughs) Um, Hiding in the shadows and stuff. But I'm just kind of curious, what made you uh, enjoy the series so much? It hooked me right away. I I just think the pacing, the structure, the, the quality of the presentation, I enjoyed it all so much. It's hard for me to tease out which specific elements I liked the most. Did it just feel like another good addition to Star Wars? Oh, yes. In the best way. It, it felt like here's a corner of the universe you haven't seen before, and there's a good reason to see it. I, I like that, too. What was the one? Uh, Rogue One, I think. Mm-hmm. was. I really enjoyed that movie because it was kind of, it was still taking place. That was a movie, and it hinted at all the other things going on in the other movies in the past, but it was also looking at some characters you didn't know before. Right. I don't know if you've seen Solo where they look at like how Han Solo kind of became who he was and when he met Chewie. And and that was fine. It was fun. I think part of the reason that I enjoy the Mandalorian and Rogue One are because they're using Star Wars as a base, but they're exploring different templates. For sure. The Mandalorian is Star Wars, but a Western series. And it's a series, which is, is really fascinating, too. And it's the first Star Wars series. What a remarkable way to, to start into the television world for, for Star Wars. And Rogue One is Star Wars is a war story. And it works as a war story. And it works as a Star Wars movie. And The Mandalorian works as a Western. And it works as a Star Wars story. And I, I think that's why I enjoyed that so much. I'm eager to see what they do next yeah season two is coming out supposedly in a couple months i I, another thing just as a quick one i really enjoyed how the show except probably the last two episodes seven and eight pretty much episodes one through six you could watch an episode and not feel you had to go to watch the next one Mm -hmm. like they just did a good job of being like here's a story and it ends like you know there's more to it you know, there's more coming. They function well as standalones as well as part of the, the broader series. Exactly. Yeah. I, I've gotten tired of the shows where you watch it and it ends on a cliffhanger every time. We're like, did someone die? Oh, I guess we got to watch the next part. And I, I always enjoyed one of your pieces of advice, Fletcher. If you're watching, a, like binge watching a show, watch up until like, say it's like an hour show. Stop 15 minutes before the ending. Because it'll probably end at a point you can stop it. And it's like, oh, I'm pretty comfortable where I'm at right now. I've learned some things. The show's at this point. We haven't yet gone to the part where they're going to show a twist maybe or like compel you to need. So it's like you can just 15 minutes before the show ends, pause and go do something else. So but that was nice about the Mandalorian. <laughs> I'm glad that's been helpful for you too. <laughs> yeah, with the Mandalorian though, it was nice just to the show's ended and you're like, oh, that was cool. I can take a break now. Didn't feel compelled. I wanted to watch it more, but I didn't feel like I had to. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that matched up with the way they released it. They didn't release it all in one go. 
when they released it in 2019, it was week by week. And so many people did watch it. They watched one episode and then they had to wait and watch the next one. I think there's something to that. And that would be a great episode, possibly in the future, about how we consume things we're enthusiastic about. Where it's like, when you do it all at once, I don't know that it has as much of an impact as, you know, like the Harry Potter series, when we read those books being able to like every few years there's a new book but if you had the chance to you're someone brand new into me you could read all seven in two months i just don't think it would have as big of an impact almost because you don't live with the characters for years but that's for another time you know this is the way and i've spoken (laughs) (laughs) thanks for listening to this episode of the enthusiasts guild You can subscribe and hear all of our episodes through your podcast player of choice. Find us on Facebook at The Enthusiasts Guild, on Twitter at Enthusiast Guild, or contact us at TheEnthusiastsGuild at gmail.com. Our music this week is Interloper by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under a Creative Commons license.